We're uh, in the middle of our Not A Fan series, and uh, if you're in a life group or if you've been here a few times, we're talking about the contrast and the difference over these next few weeks about what it is between uh, being a fan of Jesus or someone who's really enthusiastic and maybe admires him, like I like Jesus, maybe I like him a lot, and what it is to be someone who follows him, who bases their life and puts their full and complete trust in the ways and the teachings of Jesus. And the distinction between that and the way that our uh, just natural cultural tendency leans into this enthusiastic admiration. So if you're in, a lot of you are in groups and you've been uh, watching the DVDs in the groups as well. Some of you are in book clubs and things or you bought the book on Amazon or different things. If you are a reader, we have more copies of the book available at the little go table uh, in the lobby. We want to encourage you to grab that if you want. But today, I uh, want to... Um, give you, I want to kind of paint a picture before we actually go to the scripture so that you can kind of see uh, what's happening in your mind's eye. Um, there is, when in Jesus' day, when he was walking the earth, he would actually um, go to these dinner parties and people would have these dinner parties. And if you, maybe you grew up in a really small town and, uh, and a long time ago, and in the newspaper, I've heard of these where they're actually put in like reports of who went over to whose house for dinner during the week. Uh, they're like police reports, but when nobody does anything bad, this is what they have to go with, right? Like uh, gossip reports. And uh, um, so there's just, uh, when they would have these dinner parties, they were much more in their culture than just like we would have you go over to someone's house for dinner. It was like an event. And they would eat, and they would eat dinner together, but, and, and that sharing of food together signified much more than sharing food together for us today. Sharing food in their culture was like this significant bond that people had. If you're going to eat with someone, it means you're connected for life kind of deal. And they would, so they would go, and often, if the weather wasn't good, I guess, maybe indoors, and the, the main people would be kind of in the middle and they'd have kind of a low table, and they'd be, they didn't have like tables and chairs and dining rooms like we do. They would be kind of sitting on like an uh, ancient Near Eastern version of a couch and kind of have their feet up and chill. And it was very um, much a, like a long process. It wasn't scarfing down food at the same proximity to each other. And so they, uh, they would have these. And then around the outsides, uh, there would be people who would watch the awesome people eat, right? And this is ridiculous, and you can go ahead, but in a second, I'm going to make fun of you for that. But um, if the weather was better, which it often was in the ancient Near East, because it's a fantastic place to live, they would be maybe out in a courtyard, and maybe have low walls, and you could have like good seating around the outside and be able to see what's, what's happening, or people walking by would notice that this dinner party was happening. Uh, and you would stop and you would look. And, and usually it was the rich or the powerful in town to, uh, who you would watch them have these dinner parties. And they would live a life and you would watch them. If you're a common person who is probably in poverty because of the oppressive Roman Empire who was taxing through the roof. And uh, the vast majority of people lived in poverty conditions. And so you would go and watch the celebrities live and you would enjoy watching them live instead of yourself living. Which we look at that and we're like, what a ridiculous culture. And later this week, you're going to watch the MTV Movie Awards. And you're going to watch rich people walk down a carpet and get their picture taken. And then you're going to watch rich people give each other trophies. 
and you're going to go, I feel so good about myself because I'm watching rich people live life and I'm paying them to be able to watch that. Like, I just feel fulfilled because I'm connected because I, I follow Brad Pitt on Instagram. So, um, don't judge me, right? But I don't even know. If he had an Instagram, I would follow it. <laughs> but we... <laughs> we... We... It's the, it, we look at this and think, oh, that's ridiculous, but it is really the exact same thing in the exact same way that we live today. There are important people living life, and we buy magazines and watch TV shows, and there's entire channels dedicated to giving us a view in on what's happening. Uh, if you watch the NBA playoffs, uh, that singer Rihanna was at the sideline. She dropped her phone and it broke. It sold on eBay for like 65000 Her broken phone, right? Doesn't even work, all right? But apparently she signed it and sold it, and it's worth that much money to someone to have a broken phone because a famous person smashed it against their face, right? It, it's that kind of thing that we live in a society that's exactly as ridiculous as Jesus' society was. Uh, and it, we look back and go, how stupid to watch people eat. And you can't tell me that if you're down on Hollywood Boulevard and you see, like, the sister-in-law from Seventh Heaven eating at the restaurant, you don't sit there and eat and stare at her the entire time. Happened to me. All right? <laughs> Seventh Heaven. Is that even, like, that's not even a good show. But she is this semi-reoccurring character and is the most famous. And then I saw Lisa Leslie at Disney World last time. You don't even know who that is, but I watched her finish eating. All right? And... She's a WNBA player, very tall. And uh, you, some of you don't even know that a WNBA exists. So <laughs> that's how desperate I am to watch celebrities eat. There is this. So Jesus exists in this culture because he's gaining notoriety. When Jesus is on earth and he's walking around during his ministry, healing people, he ends up with crowds that are described as 4,000 men and women and children. 5,000 men plus women and children. And, and these are the people that are listening to his teachings and following his ways. It's upsetting the power structure and the, the religious and political authority because those things were all intertwined. And they're trying to understand the way that works. So Jesus goes to a party. And I want to read this to you. We're not going to put it on the screen yet because I want you to just kind of try to picture this in your head. Jesus is going to this dinner party. And the people are watching because Jesus is one of the celebrities. If they had a picture or an Instagram, they would take a picture and say, I saw this Jesus guy who has huge crowds that come and see him. He has many followers on his Twitter, you know. Um, this is chapter 7 of Luke. It says, One of the people asked him to eat with him. And he went into the person's house, and he took a place at his table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. And let me back up. If, in case you don't read the Bible often or read the footnotes, a woman of the city who was a sinner is as bad as you think that is. All right? This was a woman who was uh, paid to have sex with people. She was a prostitute. All right? And if you're at a dinner party, the last thing, or if you're watching your celebrity walk down the red carpet getting their t picture taken, the last thing you're thinking about is a woman of the city or a prostitute being in a place like that, all right? And it doesn't, it's not like a fancy prostitute, all right? This would be a person uh, who gave themselves to men who could afford it, 
in order that she could live. It wasn't, there wasn't like some kind of fancy pretty woman thing going on here. And so, uh, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at a table in this person's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which would be something that uh, I'll explain in a second, but it's a rich people's perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, so he's reclined at this couch and weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them off with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. If you can imagine just for a second that you're at a party, maybe you're rich and famous, and you invite Jesus, and the town whore walks in, your party all of a sudden changes, doesn't it? Like the correct response is, shove the town whore back out the door, get your security, call 911, I don't know, you figure that out. You put an end to this situation. What's awkward about this party that you don't read at the beginning is that it was missing the customary things that a dinner party deserved if Jesus comes over to your house. These people didn't have cars, right? So they would ride something or the majority of them would walk place to place. And so their feet were incredibly dirty. And so when you went to someone's house, they would, as a sign of honor to you, wash your feet. Or if they were wealthy, like you're, if you're wealthy and having rich people dinner parties, you would have a servant who would do that. And usually it was maybe a, like a slave or a servant. Uh, it wasn't like a servant you paid. It was someone you owned. And they were usually maybe uh, mentally handicapped or physically deformed. They were a servant that you wanted to sit by the door just in case. They were like a boot brush that would sit by the door and clean feet as you came in and left. That's missing from this story. Jesus is sitting at the table and nobody has done that for him. Then when you come in, it would be customary in their culture, and it actually commands this four times in the New Testament, but it's a cultural command, that they would greet each other with a kiss. That's how men greeted each other. So this is not a manifest ad. That doesn't happen. <laughs> this is a cultural reality for them at that time where they would hug and kind of in an Italian kind of way kiss each other on the cheek. And then... Because you would have all these people here with insufficient shower facilities, you would want your party to smell good when it's full of these people, and so you would actually put ointment or perfumes in their guest's hair. Like, here, you're here, welcome to my party, let me wash your feet, you've walked a long way, you're probably sweaty, and instead of, like, turning on the candles or plugging in the scentsy pots, you would actually put, like, lavender oil on your, all your guest's hair, and as they walked around, it would be like this big calming diffuser, right? And... <laughs> That's missing from this story. Those things don't happen in this story. And, and they didn't happen. Like, it's not just that they left it out. Jesus was invited to this party, and the person who ran the party didn't do these things. Didn't take care of Jesus when they came in, when he came in. But Jesus isn't judgmental. He's not a jerk. He's not a Justin Bieber-style celebrity that deserves things and stuff like that. He's, I shouldn't slam Justin Bieber. He's a good guy, I bet. But, <laughs> but there is this, he, I should say, he's not a modern-day celebrity that thinks that he deserves things. Jesus actually, the Bible talks about he empties himself and seeks humility. And so Jesus isn't going to judge the guy. But then 
the town whore walks in, a woman of the city, and she actually goes and starts crying, and she's so overwhelmed to be near Jesus, and why would she be overwhelmed? If you read the Not a Fan book, he talks about this in this story. When the town whore walks into your dinner party, how do you look at her? Right? How do you look at her when you're the celebrity or you're the person who's supposed to be there? And I know you're not a celebrity, but there are situations where you're important. At your home or at your job or on your team or at your work or at your school. And then the, this woman walks in that shouldn't be there. And if you can give her a look that would communicate that she shouldn't be there, you're giving her that look. I'm giving her that look. It's the right thing to do, we think. But Jesus apparently gives her a look that says, it's all right for you to be close to me. Jesus. The guy who's supposed to be important is apparently aligning himself with a woman of the city, with a sinner. In our culture, we like to say, oh, we're all sinners, right? When the Bible says that, it's not like, oh, we're all sinners. It's like this person is that person that if they come into church and sit next to you, you're faking that you need to go get a coffee so you can get a new seat. It's that person that has that disease that you're nervous, is communicable, and so when it comes to handshaking time, you have things in your hand and you can't put them down, sorry. Jesus allows this woman to come up to him. A woman who does not experience this kind of interaction, especially with males. And so she walks up and she's so overwhelmed in Jesus' presence that she begins to wash his feet. She puts herself in the position of the handicapped or maimed slave that should have been at the door. And she begins to do the most humbling thing she can with her tears. And then knowing that she can't ask for a towel, she puts her hair down and begins to dry his feet and wash it with her long hair. Which, culturally in their times, the, the Not A Fan book talks about this, it could be an erotic gesture. It could be a grounds for divorce to let your hair down for someone other than your husband. This would be as scandalous as we can imagine. It's also a sign of like humility and remorse and those kinds of things. That, so it's not like she was flirting with Jesus, all right? But the thing that she did was so outside of the cultural boundaries that everyone in the room is now trying to fix this because Jesus is their guest. I want to put it on the screen so you can see it. Because it wasn't just a person. It was one of the Pharisees. Now, if you have just like a Sunday school level knowledge of the Bible, then you know the bad guys are Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And you know that cute joke, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Oh, Lord, right? If you come up to me after my sermon and say that joke, I'm going to flip, all right? Like, 
That's actually happened to me. Uh, <laughs> Frick. All right. <laughs> so we're off topic. The Pharisees, to us, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know they're the bad guys. And so you read the story and you know right away, I know who the bad guys are. Good guy, Jesus. Moses, Abraham, good guy, right? And we have this kind of child view of the Bible where there's good guys and bad guys. You need to know that in their culture, the Pharisees were the good guys. The Pharisees were the celebrities. They're the people who they wanted to see who they were eating with. And hopefully someday they would get to eat with them. I recently went down to a seminar with a pastor and author. His name is Rob Bell. He's now like an Oprah disciple, which is a little bit awkward. Um, but he's been really influential in my life. And I went down to this two-day seminar with him and, and just the, some of the things he's helped me with as far as being a leader and being a person and a follower of God are really important to me. I sit in this room. There's 60 people there. I'm not lying. 40 of them paid money to be near a celebrity. It was the most awkward realization in my entire life. There's probably, I sat by some guys who were like young leaders and pastors and in their community and really wanted to help reach new generations with the gospel. And then there were this couple who sat right at the front, they were engaged. And it's terrible because they sat right at the front because they wanted to be close. It was like the third time they had paid for this thing to be close to him. And he's not a big celebrity. Like he has a talk show coming out on Oprah's network. All right, that's not good. Uh, like that means all the other networks said no all right so i mean that's better than me all right blah 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 all right but you can pay money to be close to someone there's high level pastors and high level celebrities that will coach you and mentor you for a fee and like significant fees not just like you pay 25 dollars and you get to talk to them hundreds of dollars per meeting you want to be telephone coached by some pastor on the east coast there's networks that I see that it's $300 a month so that they can tell you what to do with your life. This is who the Pharisees are. They're the people that we look to for the answer. I want to follow God. The Pharisees know how that happens, and so I'm going to look to them. If you did too much Sunday school when you were a kid, you see bad guy. Everyone in this story sees good guy. Okay? So don't see bad guy. That's why I read it first. Because the Pharisee are the people who've got it together. They're the church-going people who volunteer, who give, are probably leaders in their local synagogue or their local, what is now we would call a church. And so one of the Pharisees, one of the celebrities, one of the people with influence in this particular village asked him to eat with him, asked Jesus to come to dinner. Jesus is being brought into the inner circle of the influential in the community. This is a super opportunity for Jesus because he can partner up with these guys and maybe his message will spread out more. It's like getting a show on the Oprah Network. <laughs> he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, the woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment which would be a perfume that she would use so that when she was servicing men, it, there was a good smell. And standing behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and to himself only, 
if this man were a prophet, then he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, so we know his name, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, not knowing that Jesus knows what he was just thinking. Jesus says this, a certain money lenderer had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. One owed 10 times the other. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, which is awesome. Now, which of them will love him more? Someone who has a great debt or someone who has a mediocre debt? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus, he said to him, you have judged rightly. This is obvious, right? And this is what rich people do, give each other trophies. Okay, I'm going to ask you a really obvious question, and then you're going to answer it right. I'm going to give you a trophy for it and tell you you're awesome. Jesus is fitting in. Then Jesus does what Jesus does. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that question because everyone in that room is trying not to see that woman. Do you get that? Like everyone in that room is trying to imagine that woman out of the room. And Jesus asked, do you see her? He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little and jesus turns to this woman and looks her in the eye and says your sins are forgiven and so when we read this story and we find ourselves in the story if we start at the beginning with the word pharisees we know we aren't supposed to be that guy pharisees bad guy right we know those are bad guys. And so when James reads this story, I know I'm going to hate the bad guys. But the truth is, we love the bad guys. And the bad guys of our day. And we wish we were one of them. And we take selfies, and we put them on the internet, and we make stupid videos and hope they'll go viral. Because we wish we were in that position. We wish... We could bump elbows with the celebrities. We wish we could be at the dinner party and be supposed to be at the dinner party. And then Jesus asked this question that says, who has more sin to be forgiven? This woman or you? And the answer is this woman. And so she loves much because she has been forgiven much. Jesus turns to this woman, and we find out who the good guy in the story is, if that's what you need. And it's the town whore. This won't be taught to your kids in Sunday school, because the moral of the story is be like the town whore. <laughs> right? This is probably why you identify with the Pharisees and go, bad guys, okay, oh, sinner, good, I, I'm going to do, there you go. It's one of those things that pushes past 
what's comfortable. When we're in our groups or when we're talking about this not a fan or we're having conversations, we try to identify in our heads who's a fan, who's a follower, right? And we want to be a follower. But if you are, excuse me, if you are a follower, you know culturally rule number one is not to proclaim yourself to be a follower, right? Because you're too humble for that. You want to be the most humble person here and get a prize for it, but you know once you get a prize and you show it off, you're not humble anymore. And so when you are in thinking about this or you're in your groups, we begin to think, who are the followers? And, and we naturally, I read from Mother Teresa's writings last week, we naturally think, Mother Teresa, right? Uh, this, the super missionaries or uh, Billy Graham or... Uh, like all these super awesome people, celebrity Christians, those are the ones. And I'm not like them, so I must be a fan, so I must need to become more famous and more influential because that's what it means to be a follower. And this story completely screws with us. Because we have this image in our head of where we need to move towards and how we need to work harder so that we get there. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to go to church more. I need to give more. I need to serve more. I need to do all those things on the checklist so that everybody looks at me and says, I'm a follower. I need to, be, like, I need to know that. And I need to work that direction. And I need it to, I need it to happen. And then we read this story. And if you identify the fan or the follower in the story the way Jesus does, it messes with that perception, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, being the awesome super-Christian isn't the goal. It becomes rather difficult, doesn't it? Because you've been coming here for four and a half years trying to become an awesome super-Christian, and then Pastor James pulls this crap. And he says, you know what? <laughs> Maybe the person who realizes their sin and cries tears on Jesus' feet and dries them off with their own hair knows more about who Jesus is and what he's about than you with your training and your gold stars and your everything else. See, I think the problem isn't that you're not good enough. I really think, and this isn't just your problem, this is my problem. I think our problem is that we think we're too good. Because we're not a woman of the city, a sinner. When you walked in, the vast majority of us, when you walked in, people were glad you were here. Right? And we've worked really hard to be good enough and what a follower of Jesus is, is a person who realizes that despite them not being good enough, Jesus is good enough. Amen. That Jesus is enough, that he's merciful enough, graceful enough, that he looks upon you and he sees you. And you don't have to put on an image so that Jesus will see your image. You don't have to put on a show so that Jesus will see your show. He sees you. He sees you at your worst. He sees you when you're stuck in your sin, 
when you're stuck in your attitude, when you're stuck in your addiction, when you're stuck in your brokenness and your, the way you're screwing everything up around you, he sees that guy and that woman and he looks and he loves and he seeks relationship. And he says, you are the person who can follow me. It's not this ascent to greatness that we're talking about here. It really is a descent into God's greatness. Because at the end of the day, we don't have a checklist here to see if you're good enough. Because Jesus doesn't have a checklist to see if you're good enough. We have a question that asks, when's the last time that you approach Jesus as you really are? When's the last time that the realization of who you are caused you to shed tears at Jesus' feet? When's the last time you worshipped in a way that you weren't, that you didn't prioritize what people around you would think? This woman walks into a dinner party where she's not supposed to be and nobody can stop her. When's the last time you prayed, you had an interaction with Jesus that was this level of intimacy? When we build up into this series, we talk about are you a fan or a follower? And the obvious answer is we want you to be a follower. And the natural thing is, okay, I need to work harder because James said I need to work harder because I need to be a follower, not a fan, right? And so I need to do these things. And if we get trapped in that, then you end up full of guilt and shame because you will never be good enough. You will always be the Pharisee at the dinner party. That's you. What the call is, is a call to be so dependent on Jesus, so dependent on God, that you start to understand what following God really is. It's a complete surrender onto him so that the results of my life are dependent on God's work, not my own. So that Jesus forgives me, not because I managed to say the right words or do the right things or do whatever, but because I come to his feet and I pour my sin out and I just say, this is where, this is all I am and this is really what I am and this is all there is and I realize that it's inadequate and I'm really sorry about that. And Jesus says, looks at your eyes and tells you your sins are forgiven. This is the time. See, this is not the series where we get our church to work harder or to be gooder. This is the series when the people of our church say, this is all I've got. And this is all I am. With everything that it is, I'm just going to throw it out there and I'm going to put myself completely dependent on Jesus. And there might be people around me that find that that's wonky and they wish I wasn't in the room. But this is what I've got. Because what I've actually got is Jesus. And my goodness is dependent on him. And my greatness is not dependent on my own achievement. This is what I want to do. Because we've been asking in your groups, are you a fan or a follower? Are you a fan or a follower? And you, like good Christians, 
have been saying, oh, I'm a fan, I'm not a follower, when really you're like, dang, I'm a good follower compared to those dorks in my group, right? <laughs> That's what you've been saying. You just aren't saying it out loud, and the story reveals that Jesus can hear you. <laughs> the band's going to come out here in a second, and we're going to worship, and they've got a new song for us, but it's a traditional song with easy words that you can get. And up here at the front, we've got these. These are kind of, these are as cheesy as you want them to be, but they're wristbands that say, not a fan. They're those little, like, uh, live strong things, all right? And then, I don't want you to put this on to be cool. I don't want you to put this on to say, oh, I'm, I'm really good at this. <laughs> really what this is saying is that I'm terrible at this. Like, really, as far as being one of the good guys in the story, if I'm in the Bible, I'm not lining up with the good guys. They're not teaching my story in Sunday school. <laughs> because if we knew my story, the only good thing in my story is Jesus. And the only good work that comes out of my life is God's work. Amen. And so, while the band's playing, if God's speaking to you, and he's calling you to quit being a fan and quit working so dang hard and trying to impress yourself so that you think that Jesus is impressed with you. If he's calling you to just have that intimate relationship with him, to kneel down and pray and pour yourself out and say, God, this is all there is, then that's, this is what that wristband is going to signify. And so during the song, I'm going to invite you to come up and get one. And if you need to pray up at the front or pray with someone we want this to be a commitment moment not the cool christian crap that you can wear on your wrist moment all right that's probably too crass for an altar call but <laughs> but we it is the kind of thing and some of you have jobs where you can't wear this and that i understand that it isn't about now i'm going to wear this for the rest of my life so that jesus is impressed with me it's more a reminder to myself that the people in the scripture who are followers of Jesus are the people that I ignore. They're the people who are sinners. They're the people who throw themselves, sin and all, in front of Jesus and hope for that mercy and grace that he promises, completely dependent on his truth. I'm going to pray for us, and the band will come up, and then we'll, uh, we'll worship together and allow you to come and get one as a sign of your commitment to actually get up in front of others and say, I'm that guy who's not good enough. I'm that woman who doesn't have it all together. And if Jesus was here, I hope that I would be the person that kneels down in front of him humbly, not the person who's trying to create an impact. Let me pray. God, when we read these stories, there's just an overwhelming um, desire that we seem to have so that we can turn towards being awesome. Like this overwhelming need that we have like, for you to be impressed with us. God, we're good. Like, I'm, I'm, we're good at this. We're better than we used to be. We're better than those other people. And yet, you call us today, God, to be honest, 
in a way that allows us to experience the greatness of your forgiveness. And I pray that you would forgive us for the entirety of our sin. Some of us maybe for the first time because we've sought you and we want you to be Lord of our life, but not Lord of this part over here. And today, Lord, today, Jesus, is the day when we just put it all down. When we say enough is enough, enough work, enough trying, enough on our own. Enough of ourselves. Please allow us, through your Spirit, to live in you and through you and by you alone. By your grace. Amen.